Some years ago, we sold all our stuff and traveled the world for four years. It's not that easy. It's actually quite hard. Um, but the hardest part isn't actually selling all your stuff. It's letting go of the old models and the old stories of what should be and how you should live your life. So 2012, we sold everything. I remember that summer, just a constant stream of people knocking at our door, buying stuff off eBay, buying shoe racks, buying cupboards, buying a car, buying cars, buying everything until we sold everything pretty much until we were down to three suitcases. And then we hired a van, we dumped all our stuff, gave away stuff to charity, gave away stuff to neighbors. The whole summer we spent giving stuff away. It was quite liberating because we were a small family of three people. My son at the time was six years old. You build up a lot of stuff, especially if you have a baby a lot of crap. People give you stuff, toys that don't last. Toys last, you know, they, they last six months. Clothes don't last. You know, you've got prams, you've got Thomas the Tank Engines toys that's just, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff that has a very short shelf life. Giving away stuff's interesting. It's quite liberating. I mean, obviously, there's the real joy of giving toys to kids because it's like Christmas and birthday all in one. And then there's the joy of that, that sort of relief you get when you give away stuff and you, you, you don't have anything. You just have your bare hands really and the clothes on your back and the knowledge that you can do anything you want. You know, and you've got nothing to lose. I mean, obviously we're not starving. We're not, enforcing some kind of poverty on ourselves we are have the means and you have the means to make the right decisions i think this is really important you decide what's good for you not good what's good for your stuff how important that is the tail wags the dog i talk a lot about it in business as well but it's certainly true in personal life as well so we traveled the world for four years we flew to new zealand and landed up in the Bay of Plenty down in Toronga. Beautiful down there. Under the the you know, the gaze of Mount Monganui. It's beautiful. I love that part of the world. So we were in New Zealand and then we flew and that it was like we, we got to New Zealand and we decided actually we love traveling and we want to keep going. Let's go and see the world. I wanted to give my son an education and I thought, what a better education at this age than to show him some of the world. You know, because the world that he's going to grow up into is going to be a world without borders where they need to think in a boundaryless way. And what better way to teach them that than to show it rather than in a book? So I remember we had been in New Zealand for about two months and then we were deciding about our next move and we had a choice. And for $400, we could either fly to the South Island or we could fly to Fiji. For us, it was a no-brainer. We flew to Fiji. And when you don't have a lot of stuff, you can make those decisions. Because if you have a lot of stuff, your decisions are then governed by your stuff, as opposed to what is best for you. I mean, a great example of this is the car. If you have a car, if you have a car, then that kind of dictates your life. I mean, I've had cars, I've had nice cars, and 
I remember, for example, I had a nice car. I won't go into too much detail about it, but it's, you know, more than average family car. And I would spend my days on Sunday cleaning the car and polishing it and even putting like mineral water into the the water reservoir because the car had started to now dictate how I should live my life. A good example of this is, for example, if you're driving this car, because it was a nice car, you get scared about where you're going to park it. So you end up driving round and round and not trying to find a parking space or a space not near anybody else because they would then damage it and people would get jealous of this car and key it as it happened a number of times. I mean, I went to, I went to, I did some mentoring in a place in, the, in South London in a place called Wimbledon, which is Wimbledon's like, you know, you know, the Wimbledon tennis There's a really nice area of Wimbledon, really upmarket. And then there's a really downmarket area of Wimbledon on, on the fringe. And I, I wanted to, because I had a telecoms business and I wanted to do something good with my time and my experience. So I, I volunteered for mentoring and you were mentoring kids. And these would be kids who are kind of from down market Wimbledon. And I drove to the center where they had this mentoring and I met the, the teachers effectively who are running this program. And it was sort of on the border of good at Wimbledon and you know, down market Wimbledon. And I'd parked my car in there and then I went into the, the center and I met them because obviously they want to know who you are and wh why you're doing this. And I spent an hour in there and I came out and somebody had keyed my bonnet, the hood of the car. They'd run a key down this silver car and just wrecked the bonnet because I was parked outside this mentoring center. And if you think about it, for that person who keyed it, they saw my car as a symbol of money, a symbol of, you know, what they didn't have. And therefore that made them angry. And their only way of sort of leveling the playing field was to key my car. And obviously that pissed me off and it cost me a lot of money because it's like repairing a uh, a MacBook, you can't just go in and repair a little bit. You have to repair a whole bit. And, that, you know, if you go to these car dealers for this particular brand, they charge a lot of money to, you know, and, and if you don't get it fixed by that brand car dealer, you lose your warranty. You, you know, like one of the key things, you have to get it serviced by this brand car dealer, official one, and they charge as much as a lawyer per hour to fix your car. So what, effectively what's happening is the tail's wagging the dog here that I'm now working to pay for the car mechanic of that brand car dealer. And I'm also working a significant chunk of my year to pay for the car, right? And that's not how it should be. So I'm now making decisions about my life and my story based on this object, right? It's now starting to dictate my life. It, and it's not only that, it's like people are seeing me through the lens of this object. And it, it's a voluntary narrative. I've chosen that narrative because I want people, I wanted people to see me through the lens of this car brand because it was for me at the time, a symbol of success and achievement and respect.
it was a symbol of unconditional love that somehow maybe in my past I felt not worthy or whatever it is. There's, you know, my psychological demons that we all possess that I was expressing through owning this car because this is my symbol of having made it, not being, you know, the weaker, uh, un, un, what's the word I'm looking for? Not being the, you know, the unfulfilled or unrecognized younger sibling. This car was like my symbol of arrival. And yet arriving meant that people saw me in a different way because the people that knew me didn't make any difference, but the people that didn't know me changed how they view me. Either they hated me because of this car or they didn't, you know, these are people that I would never interact with anyway. The only time they ever saw me is I was driving past them in the street and thought, oh, that's a nice car. I'd never see that person again. What was the point? And yet this whole thing was now dominating my life. My life was now concerned with taking the car to the garage to get it fixed, to get it repaired, to get it serviced, you know, cleaning it on a Sunday or driving around trying to find parking lots for the car. And somebody once said to me that the two best days of owning a boat are one, the day you buy it, and two, the day you sell it. And very much true of stuff. You know, it's very hard to get rid of stuff because we build expectations of other people based on the stuff that we have. And not just physical stuff, but also, for example, mental stuff. If you are a CEO, it carries with it a narrative about what a CEO is. And therefore, if you then are not a CEO, you lose whatever that narrative was. So if you lose a job, you also lose your identity. And that's why it's very hard for people when they lose jobs. It's not necessarily the money so much, but it's the identity that goes with it. And at this time, when we look out and we are in an era where people are scared, they can understand like, they're scared of losing their identity more than anything else because they will find work. They will find new jobs, but they will lose very much their identity because they built their identity around stuff. And it's not just the mental stuff. It's the stories we tell about ourselves. If you tell yourself a story that you are a CEO and a CEO therefore should have a nice car and therefore the CEO's nice car creates this expectation and impression upon other people then it also follows that if you were to lose that you would lose everything else and yet the reality is when we let go when we declutter stuff we don't lose our identity, but in many ways we discover it. It's almost a flourishing. We are scared and therefore we build walls around ourselves of stuff and titles and big offices and business cards. But the naked vulnerable self can only grow 
if given the opportunity. This stuff that we collect in our lives is like a small plant pot. And we're scared what would happen if we take the plant out of the pot and put it in the earth without protection. But that's what happens when we remove stuff from our lives. That's what happens when we remove stories from our lives that are somehow limiting. And there's nothing more limiting than the stories we tell ourselves every day. And that's why the most powerful stories are the ones that create better realities for ourselves. For example, the stories that ask, what if? What if I didn't need to drive to work every day? Would that mean I'd now save six or seven months of my salary every year? Would that mean that I don't need to live here close to a road and therefore pay a premium for living where everybody else needs to live? And therefore, I could maybe earn half the money but save more and therefore choose a job that I want to do as opposed to a job that my car dictates I need to do. And therefore we can live life according to our needs and wants as opposed to those of other people because the reason we buy cars and we absorb job titles and we use business cards isn't because this is what we want. It's because we're fearful of other people rejecting us. And we feel if we have this stuff in our lives, people will accept us. And yet the reality is it makes no difference. And it takes a brave person to step back. Some years ago, I went to Kerala in the south of India, a very beautiful part of the world and one of my favorite places in the world and opened an office in the south in Trivandrum and worked with some great people. I love Indians and I love the Indian people and I think probably in a past life I probably was Indian or maybe if I was to do some kind of genetic tracing I have some contact with Indians and an aside story before I talk about Kerala my mother's mother's aunt was and I've seen photos of her very dark very dark-skinned and, and bear in mind that this part of the family was Scottish and therefore the almost antithesis of Indian complexion very white very pale pale often red-haired fair-haired but she looked different she was extremely dark-skinned and I, we've only got black and white photos of her but she was small and extremely dark-skinned and the joke was in the family that she was a gypsy which was, you know, you when you were a kid, you heard these sort of rumors and myths about your forebears and you just sort of absorbed bits of them. You saw some photos here and heard things and stories and never really sort of pieced it together because you were a kid, right? And that's what kids do, like Santa Claus. You never sort of sit back and think, hmm, fat guy trying to get down the chimney, millions of houses in one night. That's never going to work. You just absorb it, accept it. You accept the realities of the stories that you're told. 
that's unquestioning nature of children. And I was no different. Yet there was this person in our family who's quite clearly ethnically not Scottish. How she got there, I don't know. But interestingly, there are photos of her. And I remember, it's, it's one of those weird stories, and I'm not quite sure because it, it sort of fades and into memory and it gets mixed up with all different kinds of stories, right? And it gets confused. And, but I just kind of remember the context as opposed to the content of the story. There was somebody in our family, very dark skinned, a male, and she would, he or sorry, he, I think it was a he. Then again, I'm not sure. Maybe she used to sit outside of the house in Glasgow where they lived in the sun. And she would sit there. And there was at the time a Sikh community in Glasgow. And the Sikhs would wear Sikh turbans. And the, where they lived in Glasgow, they lived close to where the Sikh community was because it was a working class area and the Sikhs would own the cash and carry stores and a lot of the stores around there. And one of the old men would walk past every day and see this member of the family and then sort of nod and acknowledge them as if thinking that they were part of the same community, thinking that they were Sikh or maybe it wasn't Sikh, maybe it was Pakistani, I don't know. But the point is, is there was this dark person in the family that somehow got there and we don't know. And now, you know, my mother's passed away and all that generation is gone. So I can't verify it. Bringing us back. There's some connection genetically, spiritually to India. And there I was in Kerala many years ago and down in Trivandrum. And I remember we went to the beach so they took me to the beach in Kerala. Kerala doesn't have amazing beaches, as you may think, for example, like in Goa, slightly up to the north of Sri Lanka. But there are a lot of coastline there. And so they took us to the beach. And as the boss, which is another story in itself, a title, you know, if you allow people to call yourself boss or sir, it also creates an expectation of who you are, right? Think about that. The actual word boss comes from Dutch, and the, in Bas, in Dutch, and my Dutch friends can tell me this, means master. And it comes from, I believe, the original trading days, where, you know, whether it was slaves or whether it was trading ships, that Bas was the master. He was the, the top guy. You didn't mess with boss. He was boss man. He was all-powerful, all-knowing. He could beat you. He could probably throw you overboard. Or whatever it was. He paid you. And that's why if you allow yourself to be called boss, you also allow the expectations of behaviors that go with it. Because stories are really encoded behaviors. That's why, for example, it's easier to tell kids to save and work hard for the future rather than just kind of mess around today. It's easier to tell them about the story of the three little pigs and the wolf than it is to impart that moral lesson to them. And it's easier to tell people about Little Red Riding Hood and grandma and strangers than it is to say, like, don't talk to strangers, right? 
because stories encode behaviors and expectations of who we are and how sh people should interact with us. A good example of this is the story of what we call ourselves in our work. I mean, if you're the boss, then you have to behave like the boss and people treat you like the boss. And that therefore means that you have all the answers. And therefore, I don't want to tell the boss actually that there's a mistake or something wrong. And therefore, you don't understand what's wrong. But it today, where user storytelling is so essential to companies to grow, to understand what they need to do next, it's all about products for customers as opposed to customers for products. I need to know what the problems are. I need to know what the pain points are. I need to know what the frustrations and the awkward of the customers are. So you need to tell me that. And the, if, if we have a, a situation where I'm the boss and you're not, then you're not, you're not going to tell me. Because if somebody's saying, look, this is broken, we need to fix it, you better not tell the boss. Because the boss will beat you for that or fire you. And that's why today, I, whoever I hire in my organization, my team, I tell them not to call me boss, even joking. Call me Graham. Sometimes by default, some of my Indian team call me sir, out of respect, out of tradition. But I say, look, don't call me sir. I'm not your teacher. Call me Graham. And of course, they're happy with that. They're used to it. But sometimes it goes back to calling me sir or boss. And you have to kind of nix it. Go to Disneyland and people are called cast, cast members. Think about that. Cast performs. You know, if you're performing, it encodes a set of expectations of behavior about who you are and what you should do. Like if you stop Snow White in Disneyland, then and ask her, to take a photo, a selfie, she'll say, why, what is a selfie? She'll be in character. And you won't see a cowboy working, walking from Wild Westland or whatever it's called through the Magic Kingdom. They never break the spell because expectations are encoded in that word cast. And in Disney World, Disneyland, there's front stage and backstage and everybody performs. That's why... In Starbucks, they're baristas. Baristas love coffee. They tamp the beans. They froth it with love, just like the baristas of Milan used to do. Go to McDonald's and their crew. Crew scrub decks. Stories encode behaviors and behaviors create experiences. And experiences are our outcomes. So here I am in Kerala, in the south of India, and everybody's enjoying themselves on the beach. They're running around. The team that I've just met are running around the beach. But here I am. I, because I'm the boss, I have a nice pair of shoes, right? And if you have a nice pair of shoes, leather shoes fashioned in London, German Street, by a tailor called Jeffrey West, you have nice shoes because you're a boss and because you have nice shoes you can't walk on the sand and bosses don't take their shoes off because they're the boss and therefore you are then controlled by the story that you're telling about yourself and it's like the movie ferris bueller's day off where Cameron's dad has a ferrari gt california one of the most expensive cars ever 
a beautiful red shining Ferrari and yet doesn't drive it, keeps it locked up in museum, in a show, on show, resting on a stand. He never drives it. In fact, Cameron says that his dad wipes it with a diaper and he knows exactly how many miles it's driven. But in the movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is all about telling stories on your terms, they take it out for a drive, which is the whole movie. It's about living life according to your terms. It's about, as Harley Davidson says, when writing the story of your life, just make sure nobody else is holding the pen. And that's it. Success very much is a story that you can tell yourself. It's a story that you can write yourself. And it only starts when you ask the question of what if. What if it isn't work from home, but work from anywhere? That's the story that we need to be asking and telling and the conversations we need to be having right now. We are not in some holding position for business until we return to, quote, normal, unquote. It's not a temporary reprieve until we figure it out. These are the exogenous shocks which have expedited digital transformation. And digital transformation is not an operational challenge. It's a communications challenge defined by how we interact with one another and how we consider ourselves and communicate with the outside world. And biggest part of that is how do we come together as a team? If it's required that we have to work in the same place, if that's the story that we're going to tell about ourselves, even if it's work from the office or work from home, which is very much defined as work from the office, but at home, therefore all the expectations of behavior follow suit. If we have work from home, it's like work from the office, but all those processes, like, for example, all the meetings, all the metrics, all the interactions, all the lines of control still follow through. If we have work from home, we will also have the fact that we need to be at the office at a certain time. We need to be in the same city. Work from home is not the future. The future is work from anywhere. No office, no travel, no problem. That's location independence. And it's really the manifestation of digital transformation expedited by these exogenous shocks to the system. But it's hard to think. It's hard to think about it when so much of the content of work is wrapped up in our realities that we see, the stories. Like we've got this office thing, therefore we have to have people to populate it. But the reality should be the other way around. The office exists not because that's what companies do. The office exists because that is the manifestation of the DNA of how we compete, which is efficiency. And therefore, it's more efficient for us to pool our resources in one place. All our people, all our information in a department. But departments are changing. Departments are no longer effective. Departments are no longer more effective than open markets. When you've traveled the world and lived out of a suitcase, you understand that really what's important is not things, 
The best things in life aren't things. The best things in life are experiences and shared experiences and people and stories. You know, there's a great book and it's called The Regrets of the Dying. And it's written by a palliative nurse called Bonnie Ware. Now, Bonnie Ware, this Australian palliative nurse, would be responsible for looking after people in their final days, weeks, years. Palliative care is the care we give people when they are dying, when they're terminally ill. And then it's all about quality of life. It's, okay, you can't save that person, but what you can do is make that a comfortable existence for them and their families and with dignity. And it may be morbid talking about death, but I like to think of it in Steve Jobs' sense that death is the greatest thing ever invented. Death's a reminder. It's a reminder what it is to live. Because think about flowers. Flowers are beautiful because they perish. Food and shared experience of eating together is beautiful because it doesn't last. It's a moment we share together and it reminds us of the value of shared experience and what's important. And Bonnie Ware wrote this book not as some kind of morbid insight into the final thoughts and wishes and desires of terminally ill people, but as a love letter to the living. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. And we will all die one day. That's guaranteed. We are all going to face it. And we all know people who have faced it. We've all dealt with that, right? And you know, you know that when you've dealt with death, it raised many questions about life for you. And when I traveled the world in 2012, it wasn't long after my dad died that I started questioning work because he was a guy who left the uh, the services. He was a Marine, a British Marine, Royal Marine, left and only ever had one job in his life and worked all his life loyal to his company, to his, to his employer, his whole life. And that was how it was back then. You worked and they looked after you from cradle to grave. And if you were loyal to your employer, they would look after you, not just whilst you work for them, but afterwards. That was the point, get to retirement and then you could start enjoying your life. Everybody kind of aimed towards retirement and then sailing off into the sunset with their retirement funds. And everybody retired at 65 and yet at 59, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And then three years later, he was gone. He'd worked all his life for that, for that moment where it, him and my mother could sail off into the sunset. And it never happened. And statistically, if you're in a relationship with somebody, then statistically, one of you is going to be incapacitated before you reach 65. And therefore, you know, these are uncomfortable conversations, but conversations we need to have. Like Steve Jobs says, these are the reminders that are echoes almost from our own futures. Because 
when faced with that dawning reality, that time is up, we then start to reflect upon how we have used our time and whether we could have used it better. And at that point, it's too late. We can't turn the clock back. No matter how rich you are, no matter how famous you are, no matter how famous, powerful, no matter how big your job title, no matter how expensive your car, no matter what people think of you, we are all democratically assigned the same amount of time on this earth and 24 hours in a day. So when Bonnie Ware wrote that book, she was really giving us an insight of what the future was going to be. That at some point, you and I, we know for a fact, unless we get hit by a bus, that, and that's, by the way, those sort of sort of fantasy deaths of being hit by a bus or having a heart attack are actually the minority. The vast majority of people know they're going to die before they do die. And therefore I have to face that reality. That we will have these conversations internally. And therefore it's worth spending time now thinking about what that conversation is going to be. It's worth spending time now thinking about the regrets that we may have. You know, and, and almost being some kind of like the ghost of Christmas future in Christmas Carol, where the ghost of Jacob Marley presents himself to the hero Ebenezer Scrooge and shows him the miser his funeral, a funeral which nobody attends because he somehow has spent all his life worrying about success defined in the terms of other people. Now, what were those three regrets of the dying by Bonnie Ware? And she said, these three regrets were as follows. One, I didn't have time to maintain and build relationships. Two, I didn't spend more time doing what makes me happy. And three, I didn't have the courage to express myself. And I think about this now in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. If anything, this has given us perspective on what matters now. It's like what the COVID pandemic has done for us is hit the reset button. And it's in many ways made us think about what matters because it's challenged so much of what was the content of, of our work and our lives. And it sort of shocked us out of that slumber and it's it's given us sort of a new perspective it's given us an opportunity it's almost like 
you, you know, you hear those stories of those people who have heart attacks and it's kind of like, I, you know, they realized this was a wake up call that they needed to change something in their lives. And almost like COVID-19 has given us this opportunity to do that. And I want to quote a poem that was read by Robert Kennedy on the death of Martin Luther King. Robert Kennedy was a great man and perhaps the best president that the world never had. So sadly, like Martin Luther King, taken, assassinated. But a great, great man and a great storyteller. Robert Kennedy, the brother, obviously, of his, of Jack, John F. Kennedy, a great man himself. And on the death of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy recited the poem of the Greek philosopher Aeschylus. And he said, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. I'm not religious, but I believe every word that Aeschylus wrote and every word that came out of the moat mouth of Robert Kennedy at that time truth and every word that's been written in Bonnie Ware's regrets of the dying are in many ways to us a, a call a challenge a reminder to live life on our terms this is the letter that we need to be writing to ourselves now what are we fighting for you know, outside the noise of daily commutes and office life, we're slowly learning why we are here. Emotional work, work that fulfills us, work that connects us, work that only we can do, work that we will regret leaving undone, and work that reminds us what it is to be human. These are the conversations we need to have, the stories we need to tell. And don't be afraid of letting go of the content that holds us back. Because asking these what-if questions, we may see the world fall apart. But when it falls apart, it will fall apart beautifully. <laughs>